so when 3Com came to say, let's buy you for, I, I don't remember the right numbers, I think it was about $30 million. And then the CEO said no. And when Cisco offered much more than that, he said no. And he put his hands in the air and said, we're going to be a billion dollar company. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I will be your worst podcast host today. And I'm here with featured guest, Avi Liran. Avi, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock. <laughs> I have to reduce my risk. <laughs> Well, I just want to introduce you to the audience. I challenge anybody in the audience, go on LinkedIn, look for Avi Liran, and you will get a personal audio message from him. <laughs> when I introduce you, you know, one of the things about you, Avi, that I appreciate is that you have a, a desire and a mission to delight. And what I learned from you is that delight means engage. And that's what I think for the listeners out there, that's what's very unique about Avi. Now he was made in Tel Aviv in 1962 and he came to Singapore in 1992, which was the same year that I came to Thailand as he came to Singapore as the trade and tourism commissioner of Israel. He's got an MBA in marketing and entrepreneurship, but man, does he have a lot more than that. He is a certified speaking professional who consults and trains leadership teams of top Fortune 500 companies about how to cultivate delightful leadership that empowers a culture that delivers delight to employees and customers. He was chief marketing officer of two software companies. As a diplomat and an economist, he had initiated two investment funds between Israel and Singapore and now managed more than a billion dollars. As a VC strategist, he facilitated nine investments in startup companies in Israel for Singapore Telecom, which bought two companies in Israel for half a billion dollars. In the past decade, he has been researching about values, welling and appreciation. He is writing the Delivering Delight book that will be published next year after that book, First Time Leadership. He is co-writing and researching now with Daniel Lee. So Avi, take a minute and fill any further tidbits about your life. Oh, <laughs> 58 years, where to start? Maybe I'll talk just about one thing about defining moments in my life. My father passed away when I was 12 and I was running to the playground to be there and had a difficult conversation with God about what's happening, why good men perish. And I think at that very moment, I learned perspective about life. So whatever bother everybody and they see some annoyance with grievance, I look at it, you're affected by that. You know, your father can die. So what are you talking about? Now let's go marry, fix the things. And I think that's what brought me to be a full glass man because there's no half full or half empty. There is a glass that you should be grateful for. And there's an effort to go and fill the glass. 
and that shaped the person that I am. So in a nutshell, I would say that moment, and I started working when I was 12, and I'm grateful for almost everything that I have in my life. And I'm on a mission to delight the world, one person, one organization, one community at a time. And I'm grateful for you for hosting me. Yes. It's challenging to talk about investments because I'm not so great in them. I lost a lot of money, but here we go. Give it a run. All right, well, let's get into it. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, Tell us a bit about the story leading up to it, and then tell us your story. Well, you mentioned that I work with Singapore Telecom. So one of my model was, is I put my money where my mouth is. And at that time, there was a company named Tandu. And what Tandu did, they did IPPBX over, over the net when the competition was loosened, and they have rooms in order for you to have your telephone. And billions of dollars worth. And what happened is that we realized that this is a gold mine. So when 3Com came to say, let's buy you for, I, I don't remember the right numbers, I think it was about $30 million. And then the CEO said no. And when Cisco offered much more than that, he said no. And he put his hands in the air and said, we're going to be a billion dollar company. And what happened next was the thing that made it the worst investment because people became arrogant. The CTO went to Boston. Why? Because he decided he wants to go to Boston and he can manage his R&D team from Boston because that's suit for him. And when the people start to think about themselves, they have the best piece of technology in the world. They were supposed to be bought. And then the dot-com crisis came and the company evaporated. So whenever I go and I see a Cisco phone, IP phone, that was invented by Tandu and everything that I had in the company evaporated. So the lesson that I learned from that that especially when you go and invest in startups, it's about the people and about the ability of the people to work together and put their ego at bay and not be arrogant and cocky and be very prudent because they started to fly first class because everything, they got abundance of money, so they became arrogant. Arrogance and relationship bad relationship can kill any investment when you go onto startups. And then I realized that values are paramount. Whenever you have the startup company, if you don't work on the values, on the core values of what you're going to have, people will stray. And the interesting thing, companies say, okay, we, we get a set of values and now everybody that comes, we're going to teach them. And what I learned is it doesn't work this way. Can I challenge you and to see what I mean? Yep. Andrew, what are your top five personal values? Well, I would say number one is sincerity. Number two is passion. passion. I, I would say number three is deep knowledge. Number four is trustworthiness. And number five is fun. 
So congratulations, you are the top 10% of people that know and can articulate on the spot their values. 90% of the people can't. They ask me my personal value, not my work value. 90% of them will start with either honesty or trust. Mm-hmm. And 90% of them are going to get stuck after three. And what that basically means means that if they don't know their values, how can you teach them the value of the company because there's no connection, no clapping hands? And there I dedicated part of my life to measure values in the company, measure the culture, and make sure that everybody connects on my value, on the team value, and then connect to the values of the company. Mm. Very interesting. I mean, lots of great learnings. And I want to ask a question about that. I mean, one of the things that's so common these days is people make value statements and their values that they put up on a wall. But a lot of times I look at those and I ask myself, do they really believe that? Or, or did they just get somebody that helped them to come up with a fancy you know, wording? And I, I wonder from your research and from your experience, you know, is there, let's say that two companies have their value statements up on the wall could there be a significant difference in the way that they implement those values? Or is it just not put it up on the wall and there it is? Absolutely. You see that traffic lights and some countries obey traffic lights, some of them don't. So it really depends on the culture of the company and whether the leaders role model the values. And to do that, actually we are using software to measure the values. So let's say I want to talk to an organization. All you need is about 15 minutes to answer three questions. One, what is my personal value? You get 100 to select and then you zoom to your top 10. Mm. Then we ask you, so what do you experience now at your workplace? And then they list values. Most of them are not the same. And then what do you desire the values to be? And the difference between what you experience today and what you desire it to be is the entropy of the organization. And what we do afterwards, because we can measure it across location, across units, we could see also that you have subcultures. And what we do with the information, we actually like, if you sort of say, we take an MRI scan of what's happening in the company. So committed company will take that measurement because they want to see what's going on. And then as the management level, we start to work on this and see what are the gaps that they have and then where do we want to go? And because it's anonymous and there's lots of data, you know what happens with the employees, with the middle management, with the top management, what happened in Asia, what happened in America, what happened in different kind of the CFO office, in the sales, you have subcultures. And when you have the data, everybody is committed now, let's do it together. And once people own it, and they make a decision that, so afterwards, what they do, they have some workshop, and then they decide according to what we want to have the values to be, this is how we're going to behave. And this is how we're not going to behave. And I have a story about a company that did this transformation with us. And there was a leader that was abusive and agreed on the new values. And by the way, companies that say, we don't want to refresh our values. Come on, guys, this is COVID time. 
you were forced to massive transformation. You need to examine your values. You need actually today to measure how everyone is feeling at home now working for you and what is the gap between them and their expectations. So you need to revisit and transform. So that person that was toxic, what had happened after they agreed that this is the do's and the don'ts and they aligned their values to the customer proposition, how are we going to use the values to give better customer service? And they also align it to the mission and vision of the employee experience. Now that leader went and made her staff cry. And the other nine board members, executive members, went to the board meeting, took the CEO and tell him it's not according to the values that person was given 24 hours to submit resignation or go out. Had they not went to the exercise of making a decision that we all are the culture, the way that we lead is the culture, and they're not taking an action to say this is unacceptable anymore, that person would have stayed for the rest of the life or until that person had decided to go and be a toxic leader. Hmm. That's a great story. And I think the idea is, you know, when you force yourself to really discuss and debate and create the values, it really forces you also to say, okay, so now are we willing to live by these values? And that's an exciting challenge. I have a, a funny story. Maybe it's funny, but I don't know. But uh, I have a story about values that I'll tell you is that when we started our coffee business, Coffee Works, Dale and I were passionate. I mean, I was working as an investment banker, as an analyst, and he moved from America to come to Thailand to bring to Thailand great quality coffee. He'd worked in a coffee business. He understood coffee very well. And we set up our factory. And it was a tough time. You know, we started selling just before the 1997 financial crisis, but we managed to survive through that, which really came from staying, moving into the factory and living there until we could stabilize the business. But after many years, we, we got a, a customer that was a world-class customer. And they said, well, we really love your passion and we're going to go with you. And they say, but the next month, we're going to have our audit team come and audit your quality. And we thought to ourselves, no problem. We are two honest, sincere, passionate guys. We've never had any complaints because we, we do things right, you know, and you know, we, we know that it's about the in the cup quality for the customer when they get that coffee in their mouth. So we, we were excited. They came in, they did their survey. They said, we're going to ask 600 questions of you and this factory. And at the end of it, you need to get at least 60% or else you're going to be in real trouble. Well, we got less than that. And they said, you've got, you know, six weeks to improve all of these critical things or else it was really nice working with you for a couple of months. <laughs> and so we had to reshape, you know, a lot of our business. Now, what we learned from that was that to that customer and whether it's right or wrong is not really an issue because what we've learned is that quality is what is perceived by the customer. But what we learned is that paperwork is quality. And for many people out there, paperwork is the way that they get to quality I'm, you know, air quotes. So we have things like ISO and all of those types of things, which is all about a huge amount of paperwork and tracking everything. Now doing the paperwork wasn't so hard and we did all the paperwork and we went back and they came back and then we got a 80 plus percent. And later we worked all the way up to our highest score, I believe was about a 95%. 
So we were top in the world, you know, in, in, a, in a small group within the world. But what I explained to our, our employees and we talked about was the idea that good news is that, you know, we don't have to bring a culture of quality. We have a culture of quality of great products to our customer, great service to our customers. All we have to do is add the paperwork. But imagine if we were starting out and we didn't have the culture of quality and we just add the paperwork. There's people that would think, oh, well, that's quality. But what we really know in our hearts when it comes down to the values and all that is that it is the values that the owners and the managers of a business convey to their workforce that ultimately becomes what the company values. And that's, I, I do a, an interview that I call business DNA where I interview CEOs of businesses. And what I try to do is get to their business DNA because we know that's what replicates into the management of the company. So you really, you know, help remind Absolutely. me of that. Yeah. Absolutely. I can, I can relate to that. You know, at 12, I started to coach uh, basketball, the 11s, and somebody spotted me and say, oh, the, the guy listened to you. And I said, yeah, that. And I didn't know that this tall old man who was the general manager of the second best team in Israel. And he said, well, if they listen to you, why don't you come and be coached by us and you will go to coaching school every summer. And then I started to coach. And one of my challenges was with my prima donna, with my little Michael Jordan that would score most of the points, but would not come for training. And I realized at that time that my values are more important. So in a crucial game, I put him on the bench. He didn't play the entire time. And he was furious. And some of the players were furious as well because it's important that we win. I said, no, we're going to win because we have the values. If you don't come to practice, you're not going to be on the game. And ever since he was coming to practice and there was no issue and we won, I don't remember whether it was silver or gold so many years ago, but we really did well. Now, I think that when you lead with your values, even though taking difficult decisions sometimes, difficult decision, for example, honesty, I go and I see $100 on the floor, so I could take it. But in my values, I would say, I'm sorry, I have to look for it because I view myself as an honest man. And sometimes it's very difficult because you can cut corners and nobody sees and maybe culture or values is what you do with nobody is watching. Beautiful. All right, last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? I, I have one at work and one personal. Mm. At work, I want to finish my book. And that's procrastinating by definition. And personal to be a better mate and be a better listener and be more empathetic. You see, because I'm also a strengths coach by, by Gallo. And when you overuse your strength, one of my key strengths is positivity. But when you are so positive, you could give up on being empathetic because you, you see the world with possibilities, but sometimes when people are less happier than you, they can't see that. And just by being positive for them doesn't work for them. They don't need your advice. They don't need you to tell them that they need to change perspective. 
And by the way, it's a real story. And I invite you, your listeners and your community to join us on 27 August. It's going to be 4 p.m. at Singapore time. I think it's 3 p.m. in Bangkok. Mm -hmm. We have a mojo event, which is called Moments of Joyous Optimism with Lenny. And we talk about exactly the story where I failed and I put my positivity across instead of being an empathetic listener. And there's going to be some fun, some joy, and great tools to learn. And what we try to instigate is stories from the audience to share what their stories are. Fantastic. Well, I'll put that in the show notes. And hopefully, for the listeners out there, I'm sure that you will find it exciting. 27th of August. 23. Yep. And speaking of strength finders, I have my bookshelf behind me. And I have a strength finder up there. And... Really, that, that book was a real breakthrough for me because it helped me, it helped me to identify the strengths. And what are your five strengths? Hold on. Top one is activator. Second one is strategic. Third one is maximizer. Fourth one is significance. And then the fifth one is focus. And, you know, also what made this book so interesting is the way that they delivered the book with stickers on it so that you could, you know, really personalize the experience of this book. But I use this as a tool when I do some management training so that people can see the importance of diversity, you know, diversity of strengths is such a valuable thing. So yeah, I really appreciate you talking about that. And I don't have the experience that you have with it, but it was valuable for me. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And uh, the reason why we, we kick up very easily, I think that we, we have matched, but my activator is number one for me. And I wish I had your focus. So when I work, I, uh, I need people like you around me that can complement because why work on my weaknesses rather than have people that are better than me next to me? You know, it's a great point. And my business partner in my finance business, Sansa, a, a Thai man, he and I have worked together for 20 years. He has some really great strengths of kind of, I would call it stick that he can go through and grind through some stuff that I just can't do it. And there's times when I get up and down in my emotion. And what's great about having him as a partner is that he can grab those things and just take it to the next point. And when I see him getting there, it gets me excited to like, I'm going to grab it from him here and take it up one step higher. So I know that feeling of, of being around. I think it's a good lesson for the listeners to, you know, think about what you need that makes you successful. Find the people that can, you can partner with, be around, be friends with, and use the energy of them. You don't have to become them. Just use the energy and share your strength with them. They probably need it. Yeah, a common mistake that people do is they try to focus on correcting their weakness. There is a, a small threshold that you need to not to fall down from that threshold. It's like if your gasoline tank shouldn't go red. But then you have so many other engines that you could work with. So instead of looking at your weaknesses, rather look how you can optimize your strengths. And if you want an illustration, how better you off you're going to be. There is one drill that Gallup teaches you to do is write a sentence with your weaker hand. If you write it your strong hand, write it with the left. If left is your strong hand, 
write it with the right, and then write it twice and measure how long did it take you. And then do it with the, your strong hand and see that it's significantly less time and it's also more neat and take less space. And that should encourage you to explore your strength because like everything else in life, just because you're talented doesn't mean that you're using your strength. And if you are coached for your strength, you can optimize your success. You could blend it like colors. You have blue and red. If you mash them, it could become a beautiful purple rather than you use them separately. Mm. And how to tone them, like I said, sometimes you have a, a dark side of your strength. You overplay it yeah. and it bounces back at you. Yep. When you told that story about the hand, I just thought to myself, you know, how many tennis stars decided that they're going to win by learning to play better with their left hand? You know, if that's their weak hand, none of them. They just focused on, it wasn't even a debate, you know, they just focused on where they had their strength and they built on that. So it's a great reminder of that. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmenever.com. As we end, Avi, I want to thank you again for coming on the show and I want to congratulate you for being one of the brave ones. I say brave because when I ask most people to come on the show, they say, no, Andrew, I'd prefer to talk about my winners. So you have now turned your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Well, I wanna tell you that it was a pleasure communicating with you. And the pleasure was also to have the preparation talk that we had before where we could connect as human beings, understand where you're coming from. I, I was blown away by your decision to share with people free access to your financial teaching, just to make an equalizer and suggest to ladies to have the opportunities to close the gap. And when we are launching in next quarter, our book, First Time Leadership, the funny story I'm sorry if I'm glitching a little bit. No problem. Was that the number 92 person that we interviewed was Gary Reach, the CEO of WD40. And he asked us about our survey and we found out that we don't have a lot of women. We had at that time 20% women. And he said, why? He challenged us and he said, in my organization, there are 50% women. Actually, the CEO of WD40 in China is a lady that's the biggest market and she started as a secretary. Daniel and I were so close to 100, which we said we're going to, a year, 100 interviews, let's close it. But because of Gary, we had to go back and take additional year and interview 220 leaders from 37 countries and six continents and we have 51% women. So I totally subscribe to your genuine wish. And with the one thing that I want to leave you up with, majority, overwhelming majorities of the ladies that we interviewed said that they were ready for the job two to four years before they took it upon them. And what if, because of the things that you do and we do and other people would do, they're going to start earlier and they're going to be successful in their career we're going to have a different world because 
when women lead with their heart, as someone said, maybe there should be more women leaders and there will be no wars, but maybe some countries will not speak to each other. <laughs> well, let's hope we can get to that point. I think I'm blessed to live in Thailand where we have a lot of gender equality in, in business. In fact, over my career, I've had, I think, more female than male bosses as I worked in different investment banking. So my goal with Women in Valuation Scholarship is to give women an opportunity to, to get access to this and, and to, to enter the workforce with real skills that can be very valuable. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and most importantly, protect our well fellow risk takers. This is Andrew Stotts, your worst podcast host, saying I'll see you on the upside.